This is the A. I'm Reg Clay. And Norman G. This is the A, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yay! As always, we want to thank Central Works for sponsoring the A. Central Works, a new play theater headed up by Gary Graves and Jan Leifler. Central Works, reinventing theater one play at a time. We thank Central Works once again for sponsoring the A and our wonderful consulting producer, Mallory Samara. And uh, we'll be talking with her face-to-face uh, next week when we do our 200th anniversary. Uh, I'm sorry, 200th episode of the A. <laughs> and that'll be really, Wow, we really got cool. old all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In any case, we have a fantastic guest, Nidmo Ibrahim. Um, wonderful playwright. She has a, a fantastic play that's being streamed right now, A Brill- Brilliant Mind. Denmo, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, And performer yeah. too, right? That, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I'm an actor and, uh, perform- and actor and playwright. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll be talking a lot about Brilliant Mind. And I've been reading, there's an article on mind.news, which focuses all about Brilliant Mind. And... Um, hmm. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we won't talk in depth. We'll get to in depth about it a little bit later on. But I guess your I think your dad passed away in the middle of you writing this. And that sort of changed how the play uh, was written. Is that about yeah. right? Yeah, I was I was initially interested in um, a son who is struggling with mental health and um, his fa- his father, his estranged father dies. He goes back to the house and he starts to learn a little bit about himself. So that was sort of the premise. I still didn't know a lot of the details, but it was a father son story. And then my, my father did actually pass away in November. And, um, and I also was estranged from him. And then my brother and I, uh, kind of went into this whole world of discovery through the funeral. And so, um, I changed the piece really just slightly from it being about a son's awakening to a sibling relationship mm-hmm. and that kind of unpacking of family and legacy and um and culture through this death like an awakening through death so yeah what a wonderful yeah. response <laughs> yeah no no it's fantastic and uh, it's family does have a way it's it's fascinating how funerals i'm just thinking about the funerals that i've gone to and how conversations sort of open up in a way that doesn't necessarily open up for whatever reason um, and how it can strengthen. Sometimes it can also uh, push families away, but uh, it is fascinating. I want to talk more about that and about, uh, about, you know, you in general, we're going to dedicate one hour focusing on Denmo Uh, beforehand. uh, As I begin uh, our podcast every week, how was your week, Norman? Ah, you know, I'm, uh, oh, one day. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, school will be, my kids perform Tuesday, and then I'm sort of at loose ends. And <laughs> I'm actually considering applying for unemployment for the first time in decades. <laughs> I'm like, why am I going to struggle? I'm not going to struggle. I, I've got a gig coming up at the end of July. Like, uh, the, yeah, you know what? <laughs> That's soon enough. Why don't I just take some time? How was, uh, how was Best of Playground? How did that go? Best of Playground went wonderfully. I, I think I mentioned before, I, because it's all these short pieces, I get very competitive. I want my piece to be best. <laughs> and uh, my piece was cute, sweet, wonderful. My performers were amazing. And yet there were two other pieces where I just was like, wow, that's... <laughs> there was one called Pivot where... Um, talked about social media and hashtag, hashtag this, hashtag that. It was so funny. It was uh, Luel Sonoris and um, 
And Jed Pizarro. Ah, well, hey, those are some great guys. Written by they were Bas- amazing. They were by Basilio Mendez, right? Yes, um, and they were playing things that I just didn't expect. Basilio was in another piece. He not only wrote a play, but was actually in another piece. I thought that piece was beautiful. Um, and then I'm trying to remember there was a second piece. So Pivot was the first piece, and there was this other piece. Both of them were. I'm just like the structure was great, the acting was great, all the tech that we brought to it. You know, Playground keeps trying to make Zoom work, and that's kind of cool. I did want to march mention one non-theatrical thing. I'm sitting upstairs just working on my computer. I left the front door open. All of a sudden, there's somebody trying to ring my bell, and I'm like, what the hell? So I jump up, and there's this woman at my front, and uh, she's masked, and I grab a mask really quick, and I go to engage. She's um, canvassing the neighborhood because because we are having a special election in, in, in our area. I think it oh. affects you too. Because yeah. Rob Banta got moved up in the state, his seat is open, the 16th Assembly. Yeah. State I Assembly. think he became a center, uh, what is it, Attorney General? I Attorney think? General. Yeah. Um, and so suddenly we have a special election coming up like in less than two weeks. We have a special election happening. And there's this slew of names that are on the ballot. I don't know who these people are. So I was like, thank you so much for coming to my door. And she talked about her candidate and how great she was. And maybe she's the most progressive. And I'm like, that all sounds good. And she's a woman of color. I'm like, thank you. I now have a top pick out of these. I'm going to still try and do some research. But for a local election like that, there's just almost no information. How am I going to find out anything about these people? Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you, Denma, how are you dealing? How are you doing in the age of COVID? I mean, well, we're nearing the end. Hopefully, in January, June 15, we'll uh, end this. Uh, he just he canceled well, that. Well, he, he's. I think the uh, the CDC made a suggestion, and he sort of he's hedging. So we don't know what Gavin Newsom is going to say on June the 15th. But Denma, how have you and your husband? How have you been handling COVID 19? Well, I mean, it's been um, it's it's been a lot of things. I got really involved in local politics um, in oh. Mill Valley, and so uh, you know, we had uh, we didn't really you know when you're the mayor isn't elected, it's a, a rotation of city council, and um, mm. and so you know we had an incident uh, about a year ago today actually um, wow. where the mayor had made um, some. Uh, disparaging remarks about Black Lives Matter on Ooh, record. And we basically, you know, uh, there was a calling for Mill Valley to say, what are we doing about Black Lives Matter? This was after the murder of George Floyd. And right. her response was, it's not a local issue. And um, <laughs> that was really not the right thing to say. Well, there uh, are no Black people in Mill Valley. I mean, <laughs> maybe that's the yeah. reason why. Maybe that's yeah, the reason exactly. why. But I mean, one of the things I think we learned was this is a woman of color who had very progressive values. And then we learned actually, she's a libertarian, supported Trump. And so it didn't take oh, long geez. to look for that. So I would just say, Norman, as you're looking at the ballot, don't just take a person of color as like a checkbox because we did too. It, did, it right. didn't take much to discover her real values. Oh, um, I won't, I won't. No, they, the woman actually gave her pedigree. She's big in Alameda. Co- big in Alameda politics, and I'm not a fan of Alameda. So I was like, okay, I hear you, and thank you. It just gives me some place to start research. I'm totally going to look these folks up, but I'm just, give me any name to sift through, please. If there's one thing I've learned about California, you know, 
excuse me, migrated here from Washington, D.C., the closer, the, the more you move away from the urban cities, the more conservative California can become. And don't mm -hmm. let the smooth taste fool you. You know, you can be Latino, you can be Black or whatever, really focus on the person's um, history and you know, how they vote and how they really think because- You could be gay, you can be log cabin. Yeah. yeah. I'm you like, those gay. people must have, the last four years must have been hell for them. <laughs> but that's fascinating, Denma. I mean, so you're, yeah, you're heavily involved in the politics there. Well, huh? I, I had been, yeah, in the beginning, especially during COVID. And then I also, it was one of my most intense periods of writing. I was working on a children's book that was a commission there. Um, I started work on, um, I had been, you know, basically pitching and developing a series of uh, written work during that time, because we also have a, a two businesses, you know, one is a day spa, one is a skincare line. So when COVID mm. happened, both of those shut down, my husband and I were able to essentially full time pursue our artistic paths. And um, instead of acting, I just threw myself into writing. And so it was it was very fruitful and it was also exhausting because there's no real sense of off and on. And so right. like, essentially I have, I'm, I need a vacation from COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 You had a wonderful picture of your husband. I guess he was a pre-teenager and he had a violin and uh, that was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's a wonder. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, he's a musician, um, but he's also a, a visual artist. And during the pandemic, he did a series of, murals for the first time ever um he's became a muralist and these are wow. like large scale pieces so he has one of the only representations downtown of black lives matter that he's got um um he's got a series of like john john lewis he's got a piece for um chadwick boseman um mm. fanny nice. uh fanny may uh fanny may Amber? Yeah, yes. Fanny yes. Hammer. Fanny okay. Hammer. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And um and so it's 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 nice cuz he's been, you know, we've been bringing life to Mill Valley in that way. There's another piece called Perspectives um that's an interactive piece um exploring racism in Mill Valley and so I was I was definitely a part of that community that was sort of bringing awareness to it and it's an ongoing piece. So it was social activism and art became central during this mm -hmm. time. Really, 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 really cool. Um, there have been a couple of uh, current events. I tried to, um, I mean, there have been a couple of things. F. Lee Bailey passed away, and anyone who remembers the O.J. Simpson case and yeah. the, uh, the Dream Team, so he was part of that. Uh, Trump has been suspended from Facebook until 2023. I'm sort of wondering if that's even relevant anymore because he can, other people will, are posting, you know, things, um, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of commentary things. on it, but, you know, <clears throat> I, I don't think we can, rule him out i also do think i mean given his uh his blog <laughs> oh then, yeah you know, that that's no any sign of, of where <clears throat> we're going it means yes he's going to lose influence but right now he seems to be the only game for the uh yeah. republicans but one interesting thing that's been going on uh there have been a couple of articles this week that's focused on teachers in dealing with race relations um especially this thing have you heard mm -hmm. this thing called r critical race theory of course and demo you've heard about that too huh i've heard a little bit about it um and that was actually a point of contention because the mayor the mayor specifically um ha had flagged as a like on trump's response to critical race theory um so can you share more well <clears throat> from what i understand there are teachers who go beyond the curriculum the written curriculum and they want to talk about 
uh, racial things that are happening. Like uh, there was one teacher in uh, Burlington, Wisconsin, Melissa Stats, who um, who had a uh, a set agenda, but then she pushed it aside and said, "Listen, we know that I, it wasn't George Floyd; it was someone else who had died." by the hands of the police. And she was like, you know what, if you want to talk about this, we can talk about this right here and right now. And of course, supervisors and, and parents were like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want you to talk about racial stuff here. Mm -hmm. So I think racial, critical race theory is talking about really examining American history and also current events from a racial uh, lens and really getting the students to talk about what's important or, you know, and getting their views on it. And Teachers and the administration, they are up at arms, either because they're worried about getting sued or because they just don't feel it's relevant, uh, which, I mean, that's my take on it. I mean, Norman, do you? Yeah, I, I, I think really what it is to me, it's that the Republicans, so the idea basically is this can be a useful tool, a lens to look at our society, our culture, our history. Um, and so to say, if you're going to look at something like housing and house issues around housing, when you use race as a factor to look at those things, right. suddenly line. a whole data set, data set comes up. And this is the thing. We, in the last generation, we've had a whole generation of people who have come up and gone to college, gone to school. There have been studies. There have been you know, all this academia that has grown up around the issue of race and how race, race is a factor in our culture. These people are saying, so basically you can look at almost any aspect of our culture and get some different perspective on it by considering race. That's really all it is. It is a theory. That's what it, it says it right up front. The people who are arguing against it for the most part have no idea what it is. They just see it as an attack. It's a denigration of America. How dare you talk about George Washington and his slaves? <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, could you say that sentence again? George Washington and his slaves. Yeah, or you Thomas don't Jefferson and Sally Hammond, yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's been, to me, it's been more the attack on it. And the place we're going to see it go down this week is with, um, what's her name? Ah, I, I know her as Ida Bay Wells, because that's what she goes by on Twitter. Um, but, um, and is it Nora? It's in Hannah Jones. I can't remember her first name. Um, and she just got UNC was going to give her tenure. And then they went, well, no, oh, actually, right. your schooling is suspect. And it's like, her schooling is you. Her schooling is UNC. Yeah. And so you know, the, what no, are you go, complaining go, about? Yeah. So there are two teachers. There's Melissa Stats of Wisconsin, <clears throat> who uh, dared bringing up Black issues, and parents didn't want that, and parents wanted her fired. Also in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, it should not surprise you, it happened in Florida, Amy Donofrio, uh, had a Black Lives Matter flag. And these are two white women, woke right. white women. Um, Donofrio had a Black Lives Matter flag uh, on in front of her, um, I guess, her um, her class. And the school district said, no, you got to take it down. And they uh, punished her. I think they docked her pay. Um, so, you know, these are things that are going on. And it's, it's very, very interesting. I mean, you know, the Republican Party, they're not only attacking, there's the tangible political attacks where, you know, you attack a particular issue or you attack what Biden is doing or something like that. And then you have these intangibles where they're going out through these school districts and picking out individuals who are, I don't know, supposedly brainwashing our children to being more liberal, which is crazy. So, 
That, well, same thing with voting rights, same thing with uh, women's reproduction rights. You know, it's they are they, when you say, well, oh, uh, trans. Yeah, that's <laughs> love right. that one. Yeah. And, you know, and it's a it's not an easy issue, but they've just reduced it down to this thing. And we want to make sure that women are protected in their sports. And it's like, well, can you point to one example anywhere in the country where that's a problem, where that's come up as an issue? One example. Same thing with voting. Can you come up with one example? And they go, well, no. And it's like, well, actually, not only can you not come up with an example, but you just litigated this to the point that we've checked. We've had the most secure voting in history. Yeah. And yet you've just passed all these laws that have that are not related to anything tangible, as far as anybody can tell. All of this seems to be the Republican agenda right now. They don't seem to actually be fighting for anything. Demo, demo, here's a question for you, uh, just and this is our last, you know, because we won't, we get criticized sometimes for focusing too heavily on current we events, but it, it does really bleed into theater because a lot of people are writing about the things that are happening in our lives. But I would think that after Tr- Trump has been out of office, that this would subside, but it doesn't seem to be. Um, does that surprise you at all? Or does the just the climate of American politics surprise you at all? I mean, I, I think it's a it's a good question, um, and you know, there is going to be, you know, the politics change who's in office, but there's going to be a um, a kind of fallout over the I think in this next year with Biden stepping in, and we're still dealing with Trump's. I mean, we're seeing it happen. Trump is still around, even though he's not in power, um, or rather, not in office. So I I I don't know. I mean, we're you know, people are talking about different elements and maybe we can talk about certain things now that he's out of office in a more direct way than we could before. Um, but theater has always been, in, you know, a mirror for what's happening in the world. And, and in, you know, so I, I, I think uh, this piece around current events is, um, has a really wide breadth of what feels current. Um, you know, it's been a year since George Floyd's mur- murder, and and we're still talking about Emmett. Um, you know, so we're like, it, it, the, the, there's a trajectory. I feel like, and yeah. you know, in many ways, yeah. like current events become these like sparks, the tip of the iceberg, and then the writer's work is kind of diving deep below and sort of saying like, where, where has this begun? Where did this start? Is there a root? Um, right. So. I don't know, theater in many ways can be the question in which like the flaring of the political scene um, has a place to land. Yeah, if you dare to ask the question, you know, there are a lot of folks who think completely the opposite that theater or, or entertainment should divert us from, you know, whatever from- And it does, and it yeah. can, and you know, yeah. Well, and especially with you where you're creating a lot of new work, if you want to reference something that is current, how do you manage to get that up before the zeitgeist has moved on. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think every, every writer approaches it different, but I, I rarely approach things in terms of like wanting to make something current. I often find that the things that I'm most interested in become current, you know, like in, in Brilliant Mind, I, uh, I had my own experience of my father's passing away and then shifted it to my brother, my, my brother, like looking at a sibling relationship as the basis for where that conversation could come. But then I realized I didn't want to make it just about me. And in some ways it's like, I needed to open up the research. I interviewed 20 other 
first-generation Arab-Americans and immigrants. And I started to find this interesting trace where I was, interesting, I was interviewing Lebanese Americans and Egyptian Americans, and I was finding that they weren't all Egyptian or Lebanese, that they were actually Palestinian, that that Palestinian part had been erased. And, I, and it wasn't in one or two conversations, it was in many conversations. And that sort of suddenly changed and became this larger narrative of how we are erasing where we actually came from in right. order to find, and then of course what happens, we, we're sort of, finding the Palestine being erased yet again. Um, So it's like, I wasn't writing for that. I was sort of discovering that this has been a way in which the, the Palestine is not on the map. The Palestinian identity feels like it can't be touched or spoken of because right. even other Arabs treat them as second, third class citizens in their own countries. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, You know, we no, had, it's great. It just it gives you a place to to get in. Yeah, I was, I was going to say we had on uh, Nassim Badi. I don't know if you remember her, Norman. She was a, I believe, Afghani um, uh, writer. And she talked about, I guess, uh, just being a Middle Eastern, being in, in America. And when we talk about racial relations, we usually talk only about black or white relations and now recently Asian American relationships. And we forget about, you know, other folks like the Middle Eastern uh, people. Um, but, but, you know, it's interesting what's happening right now between Palestine and Israel. And this week, I think Benjamin Netanyahu was voted, um, I think he was, I think he's voted out as prime minister, but he still has a bit of power, but his power has been, has loosened. Have you been following closely what's been happening uh, in the no. Middle East? No, I no. haven't. Yeah. I'm, I'm following a little bit, but then it's, 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 it's really volatile. It's changing day by day. And, yeah. um, right. They still have to confirm And even then, like I saw a chart that was wonderful that showed you all the different parties that had to become an alliance and their political spectrum. Like, I don't see how this is going to hold together. Yeah, but it's a good education for me because a lot of Americans, unfortunately, we are very spoiled. You know, if it's not American issues, like I have a friend who listens to BBC and who reads, uh, you know, international. I think we talked with Radhika Rao. And she talked about how we get our news, but if it's not if it's not local and if it's not dealing with American issues, then we sort of ignore it. And we need to understand there's a world out there and there are things and conflicts happening that still affect us or affect people who live in America who may not be American. So I think it's important. Let's get into an origin story. Uh, Denmo, uh, where were you born and raised and how did theater uh, when did the theater bug bite you? Uh, well, I was I was born in uh, Staten Island, New York, um, and uh, grew up in New York and in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, and then I went to college in Boston. And I had aspirations of being an Olympic gymnast. Wow! Um, and then I had an injury uh, and had uh, you know a reconstructive knee surgery at age eleven. And so I was sort of like, well, my my dreams of that aren't going to happen. What what what? Where where do I lie? Like where do I place my 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 aspiration? Um, and I was always sort of an aspiring kid. Like I, I I always wanted to kind of like you know I had a vision for something, whatever that was. And I think theater. Um, I, I remember being in a high school play, and it was uh, I think it was called "You Can't Take It With You." And ah, there's play, the Russian ballet teacher is totally classic play. And I remember a moment, you know, I landed a line and it was, it made the whole um, auditorium like in, you know, left them in stitches. And I was like, what a feeling, what a feeling to make so many people laugh. 
And um, I just loved, I, like, I think I, I just loved the, the sense that you could really create uh, create these mini worlds, um, you know, in, in, in the beginning, it was a sense of like escaping into these worlds. And then I think as I got older and I, you know, I, I went to different kinds of training, it became a really, you know, thoughtful and meaningful way to, to design worlds that it wasn't necessarily an escape from a world, but it was an opportunity to, you know, design the world I wanted to be in, um, the kinds of conversations I might want to hear or have, um, the kind of people I might want to play. Um, so a, a real sense of play. So, you know, the <clears throat> theater came early on and I think it's, it's always been a, a partner relationship for me. You know, it's, it's taught me, it teaches me. I've done a lot of things in the theater. I'm still discovering how I am in the theater, you know, it's, but I, I still have questions why anyone would do theater, you know, when there's so many other mediums that are better in every capacity. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had, a, I had a, two quick questions for you. Um, you know, I was looking at Simone Biles and, you know, she had her, you know, um, she's been she's doing amazing things. And even at the age that she is now, I think she's like mid 20s now. And usually that's like the end of your Olympic uh, career. But uh, at age 11, I mean, was it soul crushing for you? I mean, was it a very was it an emotion? How emotionally did you take, the, you know, I guess the injury and the fact that everything that you've been training for is gone? I mean, I, you know, as a kid, I think you, those, those first lessons are really hard to learn because you don't have the experience of having, having done that before, you know, it was like, it's like my first real heartbreak, but not with a person, but with myself, you know, a, a sense of like, if, if that's not going to be my identity, what will be? And so um, that was devastating in every capacity. And, you know, I have a, you know, three inch scar on my knee that reminds me of it all the time. So it's, and I think that that wound became a doorway, you know, for me to really like imagine evolve and become who I became. Um, so, I mean, gymnastics, I think is always, it's, it's, it's that uh, near and dear, like love that I'll always have. And it also became a platform for something else. So yeah, it, it's, it, but I, you know, I was a kid. So I think it, it's, everything feels, you know, much more intense because you're sort of having these experiences for the first time. Um, yeah. 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 I uh, just, you know, I, that was the first thing that I thought about and it sounds like, you know, your mom was there to sort of uh, help you and, and comfort you and all that sort of stuff. And you also had theater. I don't know if you had theater at 11, but yeah, theater, yeah. you know, a little bit later on. Um, and you mentioned earlier about your estrangement from your father. You know, I was estranged from my mom for a long time. I don't know how that's affected my writing and what I do in theater and also in acting as far as just, you know, being sensitive and, and, and relating or whatever. But um, did you have your... Um, and once again, you know, if there's any question that I'm asking that's too personal, whatever you we can, you know, uh, you could say forget about it but um did yeah, you we forgot to give that little proviso. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay this isn't we can, live we at can all. edit it out if we need yeah to. but uh did um was it just you was it was your mom a single mom raising you and and uh your brother yeah yeah i mean my parents immigrated uh here in the 70s and then uh i think my mom fairly quickly realized that they were that they, this was not a good marriage that you know she was very much like uh 
you know, a liberal woman, my father was more traditional, they had very different value sets. Um, and so they divorced very early on. And then it was my mom basically raising two very young kids in a foreign country, like in New York by herself. Mm -hmm. And that's a really different situation than what she was raised with and knew, which was like the family structure raises kids um, that you sort of, you know, everyone is like everyone, when the when the sons get married, they build a floor on top of the house. And so you can see how many sons are in the family by how many floors are built on top. So like you, you, you don't leave, the daughters leave home, but they go to that sort of, so there's a sense of like community that's built in that she didn't really have here. Um, and then I like, I met my, I, I had very few interactions with my, my father when I was young, uh, you know, was very young around four, again, when I was like 19. And then again at the funeral. And so it was sort of like huge swaths of life that skipped over us. Um, uh, but yeah, so for growing up, it was my, and I think that absence has actually been a really powerful effect on all of my artistic work, that that absence allowed me to fill something in it. Um, and I, I think it, I, I actually attribute a lot of my imagination to that void, um, uh, only because I think I grew up with so many families that were more nuclear, like that had like a father and a mother and, you know, more traditional outsets. And I always was curious, like, what would that be like? Um, uh, so yeah, it, it definitely, but yeah, that, that's a little bit of how I think it, it shaped me. Yeah, no, I, because we, we've had other guests on and also I can look at, <clears throat> excuse me, in my life, just the relationship um because because you know we don't we can't always have the nuclear family you know like right. um beaver cleaver and ward cleaver and all that sort of stuff and i think just you know even that image is more of a commercial um image that is pushed on us by corporations and executive television executives or whatever and real family you know it it, it changes uh and it's it's different for everyone it's um, amazing how true that is for so many people but I also, as a kid, there was a period where my mother was a single mother and I just was mortified. Every suggestion of what the family should be or my dad being involved in something. It's like, no, when I go home, there's no dad. That's not part of the reality. And when I finally, I think I was an adult before I finally went, oh, this is a lot of people. This isn't just me. Right. Yeah. And you can remove the shame because it's like, oh, wait a minute. You know, I've got other friends who don't have either the mom or the dad or something like that. But I really uh, appreciate the way you said that space, having that space kind of opened things up. I, 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 I can resonate with that. Yeah, no, it's very, very cool. Um, did you study theater in college? Yeah. Yeah. I went, uh, I did my um, undergrad in uh, at Boston University, a conservatory there, four-year program, and then I did a two-year master's at Naropa. That was a physical theater program. It was sort of on the pedagogy of Jacques Lecoq, which is like a French. Uh, he was a French uh, brilliant uh, uh, movement teacher, really, and it was a two-year um, sort of study. The first year was what life is. So really like watching, listening, mimicking um, as life is. And then the second year was what life can be. And that was like the study of the genres. Um, and every week, you know, we would have something called autocore, which is we'd get an assignment on a Monday, we would perform on that Friday. Um, and so for two years, we were given these assignments to create something out of nothing. 
And so I really learned, I think, in that process, you know, undergrad was so much about scene study, character study, you know, script analysis. And then my master's work was more on uh, me as an artist. And, and that, I, I think that's a very different lens. Not everyone is an artist. Some people are actors or writers, and then there are the creators that they kind of can come in and out in, in a bunch of different spheres. Wow, no, it's really cool. And you mentioned Jacques Lecoq, and uh, I think it was either Molly Alice Crossed or Aim, I think it was Anne Kabori who also mentioned uh, the teachings of, um, of, of that. Um, so that's, that's really cool. When did you, when did you, um, you know, there are a lot of folks who are like, well, I'll do theater, but it'll be just a hobby, but I need a day job. But then there are those who are like, this is the thing that I'm going to do. This is going to be my career. When did you make that decision? I didn't. I never did. Um, I, I, I knew that I was going to be a professional. And I knew that that was, I was always going to feel like I, I would never, um, I think it was very clear to me early on the value of artistic work and recognizing that I wouldn't always be able to be compensated appropriately for it. But I, I'm not that interested in just doing jobs. Like that's not why I'm in the theater is just to be on stage. It's the content, it's the process. It's also the, the, the performance. Um, it's the stories that, that I wanna tell. So like there is, um, you know, integrity <laughs> in the kind of work I wanna do. Now, because of that, that also meant that I needed to make sure that I had money um, in places where I didn't have to derive that from theater. So theater is not a hobby. I've invested, I don't know, 10 years of professional training in that field. So it's definitely not a hobby, but I have gone through periods of not uh, being engaged in theater um, because I couldn't, you know, I, I, I accidentally started two companies. Um, I also wasn't sure if I could I also was in this place where I was like, you know, the shows that were coming up weren't the, really the right things for me. So then it was a question of, do I just create my own work, which is when you're producing work, that's a really heavy load right. lift. Um, and then in the last couple of years, there was a, a bunch of works where brown people were being centered and brown stories were being centered. And that, that was new. Um, yeah. Otherwise it was called a non-traditional casting to cast right. someone who wasn't white in a lead role. Um, you said a couple of companies. Do you mean theater companies or accidentally just starting businesses? Accidentally starting businesses, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and not small businesses. You know, my the day spa employs before COVID 20 people. The um, skincare is a national product line. Um, so they're not tiny things, but they have, you know, naturally pulled me in that direction and also really made me know that when I'm in theater, it has, it, it's, in, um, the investment of time and energy is actually more important than the monetary for me because time is limited. And so the, in many ways, it's like theater has a really high stake, you know, when I'm doing it. And I love that because it, I feel that, you know, that it, it, it has it, it's really important for different reasons because um, I don't always get to do it. And, you know, even with Brilliant Mind, the last piece I did, not acting, I mean, like creating a work of art, I think was Baba. And that was um 2014 that's like seven years ago 
And, you know, Baba was a three-year process of writing, performing, touring until the, until the um, world premiere. Um, and so new works of art, especially if I'm like performing and developing that take a lot of time and then they usually need time in between. <laughs> yeah. One question I had for you, Denmo, we've had a lot of writers. We've had Gary Graves on, we've had um, um, Jeannie Baroga, a great Philippine writer along with Conrad Paganaban. And a lot of them, and from different cultures, different regions, they all have different reasons as to why they've gradu gradu grad graduated, um, gravitated towards writing um, for theater, playwriting, as opposed to, let's say, film writing or screenwriting or, or even novelists or whatever. And they, they usually have a theme or they have, um, there's a subject matter that they gravitate towards or there's, there's something, there's a message they want to convey. Um, when someone sees a, a Dinmo Ebrahim piece, what, um, what, what message do you want to convey in any piece that you, that you write or produce? I mean, I totally appreciate the question and I don't know if I could answer it um, because I think I'm also still asking the question of why plays. I, I can say my feeling towards why writing. Um, and to me, like I just finished writing a children's book and that commission originally was to be a 50 minute musical touring show for kids K through five. And then COVID happened and I pitched it and I said, what if we did an audio book instead? And the way I wrote it was as a children's story performed by one, but with a cast of many. And I can say that even though it wasn't a traditional play format, there is something about the relationship to writing that there is no comparison anywhere else in my life. And I think it is, and I'm into so the kinds of work I do is I, I am also, I also write poetry. I write like nonfiction articles. You know, I um, can do plays and I did a screenplay for Brilliant Mind as well. And so I think my writing kind of just, it's expansive in the sense of like the kinds of formats. But the relationship to writing for me is the most intimate partnership between the writer and the audience. It is literally in your ear and it is in their head. And there is no closer relationship, no closer relationship I, I can imagine. You don't even get that close with marriage, like in partnership that you don't get that close as you are at, from a writer to a reader. And so, you know, I have asked the question of like, Am I a, you know, why, why playwriting? Because after I write it on the page, it goes through its own process of production and rehearsal and then stage. And then when you see the stage, you don't think for a second what was on the script, but, but the, the process of writing for me is the quietest space I have in the world. And I feel that as a reader as well, when I read really good works, I, it's like the whole world silences and I get to follow an idea. And there to me, there's nothing more holy than that, one idea. And so I strive to be able to have a conversation where the world silences. And I'll say in, in Brilliant Mind, I think I, I had, there's a scene where I feel the world goes silent. And, and when you watch it, I think you'll see which part I mean, 
where the conversation becomes a converse, a real conversation, a real exchange. And there's a discovery in the moment. And so, for, so for me, it's like, I don't know if I say, I could say, here's the message I have for the world. I don't know if I'm there yet, but I, I can say when I'm in relationship, the, the relationship I aspire to have is a quiet one, is a silent one in which the conversation happens within you. Wow, there's almost a spiritualism in, in just how you explain the connection between writing and, uh, and the listener. And I really do believe just thinking about playwriting, like when I go to a theater to watch a play as opposed to going to the movies or uh, watching something on TV, I often feel there's, there's, a, there's a great, it's more personal when I see something on theater, I mean, theater itself, the venue is I'm watching an actor and the actor may be only inches away from me, but I find the writing itself, if it's good writing, is, is far more personal. I mean, Norman, you just finished doing play, Playground and not only the piece that you directed, but also the pieces that you've seen and you've seen throughout Playground, it is personal. Don't you feel that it's far more personal than- uh, Those what? are the ones that are more successful, I yeah. think. Um, it's funny because every month with Playground is a different theme, right? You know this. You, you've gotten the prompts. Um, and sometimes as a writer, it's more of an exercise than anything else. And sometimes that can be a fruitful exercise, but often it just ends up sort of just being about something. The pieces that are the best are the ones where, and I'm, I love your description of that moment of silence. I look for that all the time um, when I'm directing, even when I'm directing kids, I want them to understand that there can be a moment where nothing else is happening. And in that quiet moment, if the audience, if you've engaged the audience, that is, yeah, you're right. It's like in their head, something happens. Mm -hmm. And all you did is just sort of craft the space where that's gonna happen. Before we get into uh, talking more about um brilliant mind. And also, uh, you and I know each other, Denmo, because we worked on the Breck Project, and uh, you wrote Judith, right. which yeah. was an adaptation of uh, The Jewish Wife, and mm -hmm. just a brilliant piece, just a wonderful piece. Mm -hmm. You know, as a writer, and I'm sort of um, learning, you know, how to be a better writer, because there's the nexus between almost writing a journal, writing for yourself, but also saying, you know what, I've got to make it about the people as well, about the audience. I've got to make it, you know, so that everyone can, you know, um, get something out of it instead of it just being just a, a personal thing. Um, how do you, how do you find the nexus between that? Um, I don't know if you, if, if I'm even articulating it correctly. You know, there's I, some right. Go ahead. No, I think I think it's a good it's a good point. It's like it's like what's the what's the bridge between the journal entry and then the 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 type of writing that feels like connective tissue. Right. And and I I, I think I think for me I I kind of have a, a sort of secret rule of thumb I, that I I do always. If I had a rule, this would be one of them. Um, well, maybe there's there's two, you know, one is I usually start my work. It's very hard for me to write um, purely, <laughs> this is kind of strange to say, all of my work stems from something personal because I don't know how to tell the truth if it doesn't, if it hasn't happened for me or from me. I don't know what to write. And, and for a long time, I didn't understand fiction. I, I, I was like, well, I guess I'm just not a fiction writer because I don't know how to write that. And then I realized, oh, oh my God, fiction is also real. 
<laughs> I, it took me a while to get there. And I was like, that's how you write fiction. You write fiction because it starts with the real and then you can dream from there. So right. one thing I would say is it starts with something personal because I have to have something at risk. If I personally don't have anything at risk, I'm not sure there's any reason to read. And you can tell, like you can be a great crafts person, but if someone isn't risking something in their writing, I don't know if you'll lead to the next sentence. And with writing, you get one sentence at a time. You get nothing more than a sentence. The second piece is I do believe that every piece of work should leave with a sense of hope that the, the reader or watcher is left better after reading or watching your thing than they were without it. That to me is also a tenant that I feel is very important. I want to leave them better than they were before. It doesn't mean everything has a happy ending, but it does mean that everything should have a sense of hope. Yeah, even tragedy, there's a catharsis in the end. And it's something I was going to say, it's funny because Reg's way of a, a, um, approaching writing is sounds very different from yours in many ways, but that is something you share, mm. that there's a sense of, of just hope is the best word for it. Yeah, I, I remember Susan Evans, uh, I forget what the, when the conversation ha was, but she had said, don't punish the audience, you know, yeah. don't, don't, um, you know, uh, there have been a couple of plays that I've written. There have been a couple of readings that I've done where I ask myself as the uh, as the actor, OK, as an audience member, you know, what 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 are we leaving the audience with? You know, there have been a couple of pieces where someone wanted to write really something gritty about race relations or whatever. And it was so um, obviously controversial. I mean, controversy is the thing that brings you in. And sometimes we can misconstrue risk with just controversy and there's no denouement. I mean, it doesn't have to have it all a wonderful, happy ending. You don't have to Disneyify things, mm -hmm. but there should, you're absolutely right. I believe there should be a sense of hope. Otherwise, why did you write the piece in the first place? You know, what was the purpose? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's the difference between the journal entry and, and the, the artist is that they've somehow either discovered or created um, a reason this story has to be told. Yeah, and the the journalist isn't is they're documenting the process, right? They're, it's more of a documentation. Yeah, you know, I write I write a journal um, pretty much every day, and I've kept a journal since. Actually, it was an acting teacher that got me to do a journal. Mm -hmm. I've uh, kept one since uh, 1992. I've, mm -hmm. I've lost the earlier ones, but usually it's it's sort of I treat it as a sketch. Like I'm sketching out my thoughts. I'm trying to I don't even know what I'm going to write, and I'm just throwing. It's like a draft. I'm just, you know, throwing all sorts of ideas, you know, uh, on, you know, I would say a piece of paper, but it's really a word document. And I guess, you know, the, uh, the art, at least when I structure a play and I've heard other um, playwrights, you know, they, everyone has their own way of structuring a play. Some do character analysis first. They write out what the characters are first before they even know what the plot is. Some know what the plot is. They may not know the details of the plot. Um, when you sketch out a play, I mean, is that the way that you do it? I mean, how do you, when you first have an idea, what, what comes first? How do you, how do you sketch out a play? It's a good question. I mean, I think I'm still trying to figure that out. I think, you know, initially for me, I begin with research and I just sort of see where I'm gravitated towards. Um, I mean, it, each, each piece has, has been very different. With Brilliant Minds, I knew 
that the piece happens within a 24 hour window, that there was a death, that there's a, an arrival at the beginning. Um, uh, I knew that there was a ticking clock and I knew that there was gonna be a certain events that happened in it. Um, that felt very structured to me. In other um, iterations, I have done, like I do a lot of interviews with the kinds of people or that I'm curious about. And I use those to begin to discover what the story is. This is a little bit, I will admit, uh, a very challenging way to approach playwriting because you are discovering the play as you are writing it versus coming at it with, this is the story I wanna tell. Um, so, but I also find that the approach that way, discovering the play as you are writing it can f find connections you would have never, you know, imagined. Um, and then I think with like, but I do really love the idea of screenplay formats. And I think formulaic processes can be really exciting. Uh, I just, I, I don't really approach the work that way. Um, I'd love there to be a, a, B, and C. I wish I approached work that way. I just tend to go, I do it a little, I, I, I'm, yeah, my process is a little bit more challenging. <laughs> yeah. No, but it sounds like you do have some sort of a structure. I mean, uh, there are folks who, um, they're too structured. They're, they have the A, B, C, and there's no life because it's, 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 it stays on the paper um, a lot of times. And then there's some folks who their imagination gets so wild that there is no structure at all. And sometimes there could be issues with that as well. No, it just keeps it from being cookie cutter. You're not, yeah, just, you're not just filling a form. You're actually following, you're letting content and form shape each other. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, you know, I think because my background is, is as an actor and then through the physical theater uh, uh, training that writing to me was always somatic that it was writing on my feet. You know, you find the next movement through a shift in energy, through a shift in space that you couldn't write that. And so I think I still kind of come up against wanting to figure everything out on the page. And I try and find very so, like physical ways of discovering the, the, the narrative or discovering the structure that aren't just my idea. Like, I, cause I, I, I think that would feel flat. And because of that, I think I tend to have a more um, complex working structure until I get to a place where I can start ironing it out and smoothing it down. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. I know that as a, a writer, I may feel, oh, I've got to, I've got to have a conclusion to this. And, you know, there's so many times where either a writer or a creative will say, well, I'm not really satisfied with the ending. I'm not really satisfied with this or that, but I'll just go with it. Yeah. And I think that can be, that's a tragedy because, you know, you know that you can push yourself more or there's more of the truth that you can come out, but you're just not allowing yourself the ability to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the more you uh, be true to yourself and uh, not stop until you find, you know, the, you know, the real truth behind it, uh, that's when you can really have a piece that you can be proud of. Um, do we have a hard stop on one? I mean, I, it's, it, I've got yeah. so many questions, um, but uh, we can, I, I wanted to, uh, what brought you to the Bay? I lost the bet. Um, <laughs> we, uh, you know, me and my cohorts graduated uh, from our, our grad program. We uh, drew straws. I lost, then we moved to San Francisco. And, um, you know, the first, I don't know, that was uh, with uh, Christopher White and Joseph Eslack. And we started Mugwump in back in the days. 
Mugwumpin. Yes. Yes. What is Mugwumpin? It's a physical theater. It's it's an ensemble, a physical ensemble-based performance company. It's still happening now. Um, Me and Christopher and Joseph are no longer a part of it, but it's still continuing on its legacy. And we were co-artistic directors for the first five years. And we did um, a bunch of very imaginative works that were built from the ground up. Um, uh, So that was a very, you know, powerful, uh, imaginative time. Right on. And um, you're involved with the uh, the Marin, the Marin uh, Shakespeare, uh, not the Marin Shakespeare, but the Marin Theater Company is the one that's prom- promoting, producing Brilliant Mind. And we've interviewed um, um, Taranj Yegazarian. I think yeah. that's how this, um, Golden Thread. Yeah. Yeah. The Golden Thread. How um, how's that? How's that partnership been? And uh, you've you've worked with ACT. You work with so many um, theater companies, uh, Crowded Fire, Berkeley Rep. Um, but but how how's it been with Marin? Well, uh, Marin Theater Company, it's been good. We uh, it's a co-production with Storycraft. Storycraft was another company I started during the pandemic um, with Marty Grimink, and uh, you know we we started the company so we could do Brilliant Mind because no one had ever seen this kind of theatrical experience before, where it's basically blending live performance with film and 3D worlds and text messaging. And so, you know, uh, we, we I, I think Marin Theater Company needed a real partner to be able to bring this and dream this up. And so we, you know, we brought in the creative team, we developed the work, we did, we brought the show to them. So it was, it was really good. And it's challenging to work within a regional theater because Lort and equity hold a lot of rules around engagement. And um, there are different kinds of works that want to happen that are not, um, uh, that, that require just different resources. Um, than what equity and Lort require or provide. So the challenges are theater as an institution make it very difficult for artists to create new work. And so because of that, there's a pretty strong formula of how shows ever get on that stage. And it usually begins with, here's the script, go dream it up. So if you have any other process in mind, it's gonna be an uphill battle. Um, and I don't really say that that it was, you know, Marin Theater Company in particular. I think it's just theater, Lord Theaters. Um, Storycraft is, you know, a production company, an international production company uh, where um, our artists were, you know, like our entire team was always spread over five continents in seven countries with over 30 people um, working on, you know, designing and building our platform, 3D animation, um, you know, it was just a really expansive project and Marin Theatre Company, you know, is sort of limited to what's right around it. But in terms of, you know, them really supporting the work, I mean, they really, uh, they were the ones that wanted to uh, premiere the first production, you know, knowing that yeah. this is going to be a long process and we don't have a world premiere yet. They were like, no, we want to uh you know, be here for you, with you, and we want to support the first the first production of this show. That's pretty mm-hmm. amazing. 
No, that's awesome. And it's a, it's a credit to you. I mean, you know, they, Marin and Tehran says, hey, we want to focus on this. We want to focus on Denmo's piece. And um, it sounds like you've gotten a lot of support, a lot of um, people from different, uh, it's, it's, it sounds like it's not just a theater experience, but it, it's, uh, it's all sorts of interactive experience with, um, yeah. with uh, technology and text messaging and whatever, and uh, telling a poignant story of uh, an individual. I was reading, um, your lead actor is Khaled Abol Naga, I yeah. believe. Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, I take it he plays the um, the individual who has um, some mental issues, and he's dealing with the uh, the death of his father. Uh, no, Cal plays the father. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay, yes, father, and the father is a character in the piece, and you meet him right after death. Got it. So, <laughs> nice. He's in this place of just after death, but before the afterlife. And ah. sort of watching his children, his grown children, I play Dina and Rami's Monsaf plays Yusuf. He's watching those two kids navigate burying his father. And so he's sort of privy to the family he didn't really have. And there's this real question of, can he create family before he like in death, even though he couldn't in life. So it's a very, you know, it's a very dramatic situation. It's exciting. It's like, and Cal performs every night live on Marin Theater Company stage, uh -huh. no audience. But when you log into the platform at 7 p.m., he is performing in real time. Wow, and, wow. Uh, that is awesome. And that'll be streaming until June the 13th. And- um, Oh, wow, that's quick. Yeah, it's it, it opened on the 22nd, so we have one more week. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, getting we'll back be... to regular theater time now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One last question, because it's one o'clock. Um, where do you see yourself in the future? Um, do you see yourself, um, I don't know, uh, doing film or television, or do you see yourself still in the Bay Area? I think... Um... I mean, I think Bay Area will always be um, home, even if I may also live in other places. I'm very curious about episodic writing um, and just wanting to get more into longer narratives than just the 75 minute, 90 minute version. I, right. you know, I, I want to do like a 12 hour uh, saga. Um, right. I, I want to, and I also really, really want to be in writers' rooms. I want to be creating a narrative with other people. Um, to me, that would be a perfect bridge of the ensemble work that I like spent so much of my life in, mm -hmm. in the in the writing el um, element of just uh, you know cross pollinating ideas. So, you know, I, I aspire to different forms of uh, writing and uh, different formats. Mm -hmm. Cool. There, there are tons of writers groups around, like uh, there's the Playwright Center for San Francisco, there's Play Cafe. Um, but you're talking more the collaborative, I mean, TV, basically, the collaborative yeah, yeah. working to develop with, because I've always wondered what a writer's room is like. I mean, that totally. is, it isn't just a you do your work and I do my work. This is, we are making this happen. I want that. I want that sense that you're in a room with other writers working on one narrative. And you know that some people like know this one character really well, or they know this thread really well. It's mm. like, that's why, you know, a lot of these, and TV has gotten really good in the last five years. Oh, it really yeah. has. Yeah. Yeah. Because playwrights are in those writers' rooms. People, right. you know, and so I think there's something pretty exciting about that. Yeah, really? I, would I would love that. I haven't even thought about that. I, usually I would think, 
especially when we hear stories about, you know, like, let's say bad uh, movies where one writer wrote the whole thing and then some executives were like, well, it needs cleaning up. And they gave it to someone else who has no idea what the concept of the story is. And they totally screw up the script and whatever. But the writer's concept is is fantastic, where you have people who really understand the characters, they understand the situation or aspects of it. And it all becomes one wonderful tapestry of episodic uh, storytelling. So no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. All righty. Um, boy, I'd love to talk even more, but uh, we, I guess we better get into shadows. Oh, before we do that, Eli Sonny Orkiza, and we had him on. He yes. was the one who wrote the living document. Uh. He talks about uh, how uh, it, Bay Area theater, but really re regional theater all National, over, yeah. needs to be more open to um, people of color. So in any case, the state of California's Center for Cultural Innovation has been developing this new $125,000 grant over the past eight months inspired by the living document, his document. He goes on, uh, the grant goes live and uh, he has a link. So I guess uh, you can click on and apply for the grant if you have a piece or if you're a part of a company that really does open up um, your, really up and opens up your company to people of color. And, um, and, and this and, is a state grant, you said? I believe so. Cali CalArts provides unrestricted grants of up to $5,000 to California changemakers whose bold actions are shifting the arts and culture section in ways that gives underrepresented populations, Black, Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQIA+, and people with disabilities, more power and influence. Woo! So Eli writes a piece, and I believe he wrote it uh, just on the cusp of COVID-19, because when we had our interview with him, uh, he didn't mention it at all. And I think it was just something that he was it was on his mind. And mm -hmm. I think all of us have gone through it. You know, we've worked with theater companies and they say they want to be inclusive. But all of a sudden you see a bunch of white faces or you see, you know, yourself being targeted as, you know, the, the token black person or or token woman or the one or i was gonna say the one woman in the room <laughs> right right exactly and so eli's you know he's making a change he wrote a little piece and it's in his cre it's made you know change happen so fantastic Ooh. for eli and we'll post the link if you want yeah. to apply for that grant all right shout outs birthdays shout outs birthdays uh russell blackwood's birthday is possibly today i think i have two names that are today um and russell um I met Russell when I first worked for San Francisco Shakespeare Festival. Uh, Russell was working in production there, and then he went off and started his own little company, Thrill Peddlers. And they did a nice run of a couple of decades doing, um, they started with Grand Guignol, the, that, the theater of blood, <laughs> and all the, uh, the tech that one has to do to make that happen in live theater. Um, he just, I don't know, it was, it was inspiring to see. Um, that's... Russell's birthday is coming up. Michael Scott Moore, I met as a writer. He was a reviewer for, I believe it was the SF Weekly. Um, and then, and but he was a writer. That was sort of his day gig. And then he went off and ended up getting taken hostage and was actually locked up for a couple of years before they were able to get him free. Wow. Hostage. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, Morgan, Morgan Blackthorn is somebody that I met working with SF shakes a couple of years ago um came in to do to be a representative for um or an advocate for the homeless population because we felt like if we were doing shows in the parks we couldn't ignore the fact that there were people living in places like that 
um, but ended up also being an amazing sound person. So we, we lucked out by that having that connection. Sean Owens just got to work with. He's one of the writers in Playground. And he, and I'm not sure if he's a he or a they now, but uh, Sean is somebody I've known since San Francisco State. We were both there. And we're, it's one of those relationships where we've been watching each other for decades. And our paths have occasionally crossed, not often. Melissa Clausen, um, I'm always happy when I meet an actor who I'm unfamiliar with, who is amazing. And I'm like, wow, I'm so glad that our paths have finally crossed. And that happened with me and Melissa a couple of years ago. I can't wait for the next project when we can work together. Anthony R. Miller, somebody I hope we will get on the show at some point. He runs an awesome theater and is one of the people who runs Piano Fight. Um, and they now have Piano Fight East Bay, you know, Oakland. So Piano Fight is doing very well, apparently. At, at the uh, flight deck. Yeah, right, they took right. over the flight deck. Yeah. Right. Um, Melissa, Cla I said Melissa, Ken Ingram. Uh, our sponsor is Central Works. Ken and I met when we were doing a show. First show I got to do with Central Works, Lottomania. Uh, I'm going to skip that one because I think you have it. Robin Sonnen. Um, created the organization called Each One Reach One. And we, for many years, were going into juvenile, mostly juvenile detention facilities, teaching playwriting. Um, and that organization has now been swallowed up by another place called the Success Centers in San Francisco. Uh, but Robin was the founder of it. Uh, Larry Craighill, somebody I went to high school with, an amazing singer, musician. Um, he's here in the Bay Area. So when I moved up here, I was kind of surprised to be able to reconnect and uh, just, you know, I'm getting older. <laughs> so a year or so ago, he retired and I was like, oh, are we that old? <laughs> Some of us are, he's a, maybe a couple of years older than me. A couple more, Kaylin Freeman on the other end of the age spectrum is one of the students I had up at the East Bay Center for the Performing Arts in Richmond. And, uh, and I found it, according to Facebook, he's about to turn 27. Like, has it been that long? Really? He was just a boy. Uh, last two, Jenny Orland is somebody I went to high school with, one of my oldest friends. And again, somebody when I moved to the Bay Area, I was like, oh my God, we get to reconnect. So I've watched her raise two sons. Uh, she hasn't been doing theater since high school, but um, she became a doctor. She's been raising two sons. And her oldest is just about to graduate college. So again, it's like, wow. It's been a long time. And the last one is Christina Finlayson. Um, is somebody I met through Playground as just, or it was either Playground or Play Cafe. One of these places where, you know, dealing with a lot of writers, somebody who was really supportive of that community. And then we got to do a play last year. We got to do an adaptation of, uh, I think it's Uncle Vanya. No, Three Sisters. I knew it was one of the checkoffs. So those are the birthdays that are coming up this week. And uh, my list is um, smaller. I think only have like five or six. Sandra Weingart, uh, she participated. Uh, EastEnders did a thing. Um, Susan Evans always had us doing 100 years of this and that. And we did 100 years of sex acts. And uh, one play was Prostituting Client. And Sandra Weingart was there. It was a wonderful interactive piece where the um, there was a, a you know, um, acting going on stage. And then the acting breaks off 
and Sandra's character actually engages the audience and asks questions. Hey, what did you think about that scene? And we you know what what do you what do you comments on about this or that or whatever? And it was really really great interactive theater. In the case, Sandra Weinwart's birthday is June the sixth. Also June the sixth, Mark Dannenberg Hines. He was uh, he did Wonder of the World. Uh, which was an EastEnders, uh, it was a piece that East, EastEnders did back in 2003. And I have no idea what he's doing these days. He's a fantastic actor. Um, one person who graduated with me from Duke Ellington School of the Arts, Eugene Grant, wonderful uh, singer. He is the mayor of Seat Pleasant, Maryland. So he <laughs> got into politics and he's doing his thing. So happy birthday to Eugene. Uh, on June the 9th, Vaughn Scott Bear, we've had him on. He is a playwright. Uh, he works usually with the Playwright Center for San Francisco. So Vaughn, wonderful uh, writer of period pieces, historical period pieces, usually centered around World War II, usually obscure stories that we don't usually hear. Uh, he focuses on and he's very, very good at it. And he's got a great sense of humor. <laughs> Yes, he does. On Also on June the 9th, Chris Cassell, she was the uh, director I stage managed for her. We did Czech, Texas Chainsaw Musical. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And that was part of the San Francisco Fringe Festival. I want to say 2010, I think, around 2011. In any case, uh, Chris, um, her birthday is on June the 9th. And the last person I have is Stephanie Saunders. And uh, she... Uh, uh, acted uh it was debbie does dallas the musical and that was a lot of fun <laughs> we did that at um it was the old um the big oh, shucks no 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 it was um theater rhino uh i think they have the, the theater now eureka it was the old eureka theater oh that theater yes 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 exactly so uh stephanie her birthday is uh june the 10th and those are the birthdays that i have shows I, I don't have new shows. I've got this thing that I'm doing tomorrow. <laughs> play Cafe is having me talk to playwrights about what you do when you've gotten your play done and you, you wrote, need to work you wrote with your director. Play, you wrote your play, meet your director, your base yes, nurse You wrote aid. your play, meet your director. So that'll be four o'clock tomorrow. And that's kind of filling up my brain. That and my kids performing, will be doing the opening of Romeo and Juliet on Tuesday. Nice. So I, but uh, everything else I had on my list is the stuff we've been saying already so i think you've already got it all yeah exactly and the only other thing obviously we want to promote a brilliant mind brilliant mind yeah uh, by the marin theater company now one question denmo does brilliantmindshow.com is that a good earl or should they go to the marin uh website they should go to so brilliant mind is a co-production with storycraft and marin theater company but you'll buy your tickets through marin theater company i would recommend just going to brilliantmindshow.com you can get your tickets through there it'll take you to mtc but you'll also watch the show on brilliantmindshow.com okay great that's what we'll uh put there uh and that's of course streaming until june the 13th and i'll also just uh briefly talk about the things that we've been promoting beforehand the oakland theater project is doing Begin the Big Wine, co-directed by <laughs> Thank you, thank you for correcting me. <laughs> co-directed by Don Trope, OaklandTheaterProject.com. That ends July the third. Um, Shakespeare. We've been talking about this. Uh, they're doing Titus Andronicus. That begins June the twenty-sixth. Alan Coyne is playing Demetrius. He's one of our favorite actors. And later on in August, we'll we'll still promote it. You know, until it ends. Uh, Richard the Third will be. Um, They'll be doing that. Lamont Rigel and Cynthia Lagazinski will be in those. And we've been promoting quickfire monologues. And that's been going on. It's been an online 
uh, project for budding writers and also actors. Um, we are trying to get our own perfectionism and play with just doing. You can post your recorded monologues on uh, quickfarmmonologues at gmail.com. And we've seen Alan Coyne, we've seen Luel Senores, and a bunch of other folks uh, do and these me. monologues. Huh? And you, that's right. <laughs> And that is it. Uh, other than uh, and there's Afro Solo Arts Festival. Program one starts uh, January 9th, uh, January, June, June. That's right. 9th. Um, and I directed one, one of the pieces and it's, uh, I think it's four, it's three or four black men telling their stories, black men embracing our light, talking about their experiences with law enforcement. Uh, the piece I directed is by Vernon Medeiros. He's performing it. It's called My Story. Right on. And aside from a brilliant mind, is there anything else you want to promote, Dinmo? Um, I, uh, I'm doing uh, the Sound Inside at Marin Theater Company by Adam Rapp in the fall. Um, that'll be directed by Jason Minidakis. It's an extraordinary two-person play that was just on Broadway. Damn. And, um, Goodman did it, uh, a streaming version of it, and then we'll have the stage production. So it'll be, it's gonna be uh, pretty wonderful. And then I have um, an audio book that's coming out also in the fall called Zainab's Night of Destiny. And that's about a young Muslim girl that moves from Cairo to Kentucky and um, during the month of Ramadan discovers a desert in her closet and she goes on a, a wild adventure. Um, and that one, uh, so both of those projects you can find at denmoebrahim.com. Just stay tuned for that. Um, but yeah, both of those should be coming soon. Right on. And we'll, we'll put your, uh, your URL yeah. uh, in the, uh, the comments so that people can learn more about you and the upcoming projects that you'll be having. Denmo, did, did you have a good time? I was awesome. It was wonderful to have a conversation with you both on this. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, thank you for being on. And I've been so, so impressed with your work. And um, I'm sure we'll be hearing more wonderful things uh, about you and more great works from you. Thank you so much, Reg. Thank you, Norman, for inviting me. Glad to have you. Definitely yeah. glad to have you. And folks, next week will be our 200th episode. We want to thank you That's so right. much. That's right. You're 199. That's right. You, Demo, you are 199. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, episode 200, we're going to have our, our wonderful uh, consulting uh, producer, um, Mallory, she'll be interviewing us and we'll talk about, you know, what the show has meant to us and uh -huh. the, the journey that we've gone through the four years of doing uh, this uh, podcast. And we had there no will idea. be tears. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. Men don't cry. Right. <laughs> But um, in any case, it's been wonderful. And we just want to thank you. We want to thank you so much. If you've been listening to the A, if you've been watching the A on YouTube, we want to thank you so much. And as always, we want you to subscribe and uh, like and give us your comments, what you don't like, what you do like on um, on YouTube. If you're, watch if you're listening to this on the uh, podcast app, we're on all podcast apps. We're on Spotify. Uh, you probably have that purple podcast app on your iPhone or iPad. You can click on that, look for the A, and you'll find us. If you are an Android user, you can use the SoundCloud app or just go on soundcloud.com and you can find us. As always, the theater is, the A is, is, a, is, I blew it. I totally blew it. The A was, the A was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise or if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We actually, I actually saw that we have an Instagram account. I don't know if you created that, Norman, or if uh, someone else. Or, I, no, no, I created Twitter a Twitter did. account and I you saw that Twitter. there was an Instagram link. Oh my God. So maybe Mallory's at work. Who knows? <clears throat> but in any case, I'm at Reg Space Clay. 
<laughs> I'm at Hoosier Hoosier. Denmo, do you do any uh, social media like Instagram and Twitter? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Denmo underscore Ebrahim. Right on. So if you're looking for a fantastic writer or actress, uh, you can't go wrong with Denmo. And please check out DenmoIbrahim.com and we'll post that. As always, thank you so much. It's a wonderful Saturday. Let's go out and enjoy ourselves. And uh, as we always say, Norman and I always say, we got to find, find a, a better, better sign off. off. And we are out. <laughs> <laughs>